Well, why don't I pray as we look at these words together? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, we pray that this morning as we consider this psalm, that it would be comforting to us and it would remind us of the reasons we have to hope in you, uh, despite all that's going on around us. Amen. So that's four weeks of social distancing done now. I hope you're coping all right. I've got to say it's hard, isn't it? And it's not getting easier. Technology is great. It allows us to do stuff like this for you. But some of us will now be longing for human contact. I bet some of us as well will be longing for some time to ourselves, away from other people. Social distancing, we've learned, is distressing. But we've also learned that the world is a distressing place right now. The death count continues to rise. People are getting sick, people are dying, and people that we know and love. So I don't know if you're like me, but I'm reminiscing about what life used to be like before all of this. And I'm longing for the return to normality, the end to this current distress. I wonder as well if we get a similar dynamic to that in our faith. We can remind ourselves the good stuff is behind us. We've just celebrated Easter. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has raised. Christ has ascended into heaven. We are saved. And then we have a hope in the future. Christ will return. He will end suffering like we're going through now. And he will rule as king. But right now we're kind of stuck in the middle between the two. And we have other very real worries that occupy our minds. They drain our energy and they can fill us with fear. They can diminish our faith. We know what God's done. We believe what he's going to do. But for some of us, in our current distress, he will seem a long way away. Psalm 77 was written by someone who felt just like this. He doesn't tell us why he was distressed. We don't know what was troubling him, and in some ways I find that quite comforting. This psalm, it doesn't give us a neat solution to one particular problem. Rather, it's a more general reality check for whatever is distressing us. It gives us a motivation to keep trusting the Lord, to keep walking the path of faith, despite our circumstances. So as we look at it, I hope it will remind you of three things to consider, to remember in our current distress. Firstly, in our distress, remember God as he is, not as we see him through our troubles. And secondly, in our distress, remember the Lord's power and his will to redeem. And thirdly, in our distress, remember that the pattern for God's people is to faithfully follow his path through our troubles. So let's look at the first one uh, together. In our distress, remember God as he is, not as you see him through your troubles. I said, we don't know what troubled Asaph. He's the guy that wrote this psalm. But he leaves us little doubt about his impact. Look at how he starts. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my song in the night. Does that sound familiar right now? In this coronavirus crisis, we're distressed. We have genuine concerns for our health, for those that are dying. We cry out to God for help. 
We miss how life used to be when we could see each other. Whatever was troubling Asaph, he was experiencing similar emotions to you and I right now. His troubles were substantial, overwhelming, they were all-consuming. His emotional distress affected him physically. He cries, he groans, he faints, he can't speak, he can't sleep. In fact, it seems that he's particularly troubled during the night. When he lies down to rest, his mind remains restless, preoccupied by his troubles. Three times in the psalm, he tells us about the impact of his troubles on his sleep. His eyes won't close, so he stretches out his hand and he remembers his songs. When you think about those, those are quite odd responses to insomnia, until you learn who Asaph was. He was appointed way back in Israel's history by King David to minister at the temple in Jerusalem. He was the worship leader, a musician who prophesied through his music. He called upon the Lord, invoked him, he thanked him and praised him. So when he's struck by misery and insomnia to compound it, Asaph turns to the posture and the vocabulary of his day job. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't binge watch on Netflix. He raises up his hands to heaven. He adopts a posture of prayer and praise. And he replays the songs that he sung throughout the day, praising God, thanking him and appealing to him. Asaph is not faithless in his troubles. He is active. He cries out to God for help. He cries out to God to be heard. He seeks the Lord. He remembers God. He meditates. He considers the past. He praises. We should remember the Lord in our current troubles. Seek him. Cry out to him. Recall his past goodness to us. It's good to fill our minds with worship when we're inclined to worry. Yet, despite all these good actions, I think something is amiss in this picture. Something is still out of kilter. One thing that's conspicuous by its absence in the first half of Psalm 77 is prayer. There's a lot of pondering and remembering and meditating as Asaph approaches the Lord, but there's not much praying. There is no dialogue with God. In fact, he's too troubled to speak, so he groans and cries. The only phrase in the first half of this psalm that Asaph directs to God is to blame him in his suffering. You keep my eyes from closing. I've been struck the last four weeks by how often I mistake my ponderings for prayers. I think I'm bringing my troubles to God, but stop short of actually talking to him about them. It's not that I'm inactive. I have considered who he is in this crisis and how it's not inconsistent with what I know to be true about him, with my faith in him. But if I'm honest, I haven't prayed half as much as I would have liked to. It seems Asaph was in the same boat. There's another thing that's conspicuous by his absence, and that's joy. Asaph doesn't seem encouraged by all his pondering and his meditating. In fact, it seems quite the opposite. When he remembers God, that's when he groans. When he meditates, that's when he grows faint. But there's also something willful about Asaph's misery. It's not just the weight of his distress that makes him groan when he considers God or faints when he thinks about him. There's actually a refusal on his part to be comforted, 
Just look again at verse 2. I was in distress. I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. It's one thing to be overwhelmed by our troubles and distress, but it's quite another to refuse God's comfort. And yet that seems to be Asaph's mindset in the first half of this psalm. He doesn't want comforting, he wants action. He wants God to resolve his problems. He's less interested in who God is in his troubles and more interested in why God isn't bringing them to an end. Is that how you're responding to our troubles? If it is, then please be warned, it is a dangerous approach to take. And it comes perilously close to blaming God and complaining to him. And those are disastrous for our faith and for our relationship with him. In this psalm, that comes to an ugly head when Asaph remembers God for a second time in verses 6 to 9. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has he forgotten to me be merciful? Has he, in anger, withheld his compassion? He is pretty much blaming God, isn't he? He certainly sees the Lord's hand in his continual suffering. He feels rejected by God. He feels unfavoured, unloved. He feels forgotten and forsaken. He feels God's anger in his troubles. Now it's okay, perhaps it's even a right to question God in our trouble. We can ask, why is this happening? And how long is it going to go on for? But here, Asaph's actually taking a step further. His questions to God aren't just general grumblings about his troubles. They're actually really targeted digs at God's very character. He remembers God, he meditates on him, but refusing to be comforted, He questions whether he really can believe what he knows about God, what he sings about him. He asks, is God really who he says he is? Because I don't see much evidence for it. Let me explain that. You see, generations before Asaph, God revealed his name to Moses and all of Israel. And his name is a declaration of his character. You can read it in Exodus 34. And it's a recurring theme in many of the psalms that Asaph would have sung in the temple. This is God's name. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now bear that definition of God's character in mind as we consider Asaph's questions again. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? God, are you maintaining love? Has his unfeigning love vanished forever? Are you abounding in love? Has his promise failed for all time? Are you abounding in faithfulness? Has he forgotten to be merciful? Are you gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? 
Are you compassionate? Are you slow to anger? Do you see how pointed his questions are? He's saying, my distress is so overwhelming that thinking about you makes me miserable. I don't believe what I sing about you, and I'm not convinced that you're all you claim to be. That is a massive accusation. Is it one we attempted to make in our current distress? One thing that I have personally really missed in social isolation uh, is going for a swim. Now, Joe Wicks and a daily jog is just fine, but I love the water. And I miss my Saturday morning routine when I take the kids to the pool and do a few lengths while I have their swimming lessons. And you know what? I've come to realise I miss a little trick that gets played on me every Saturday morning when I do that. At one stage, I will glance out the swimming pool window and I will see a glorious blue sky. So start planning how to make the best of the day. The beach, a castle, a walk somewhere. And it's only when I get out of the pool and look out the window I realise it's grey and raining. The sky was never blue. My goggles are. I couldn't see things as they were, really, because I was looking through a filter. And that's a bit like what Asaph is doing here in a sort of spiritual dimension. He's looking at God, not through a filter of blue plastic, but through the filter of his troubles. And just like my perception is changed by my goggles, his perception of the spiritual reality is similarly altered. Asaph is consumed by his troubles, so much so that he can't see God as he is anymore, and instead doubts his character and nature. So that's a warning from Psalm 77 for us this morning. When troubles come, remember God as he is not as you see him through your troubles. God is not defined by how we feel or what we are experiencing. God is defined by who he says he is and by what he has done. If our distress makes us doubt this, then we are looking at God through a filter and seeing a distortion and not the reality. We need to remove the filter, consider God as he says he is, as he really is. And that's what Asaph starts to do in verses 10 to 12. And that is where everything in this psalm changes. There he stops questioning God's character. And he shows us how to approach God in our distress. In distress, remember the Lord's power and will to redeem. I think we do well to pay attention to Asaph's resolve in verses 10 to 12. Let me read them. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When Asaph resolves to remember and meditate for the third time in this psalm, he begins to examine the evidence for God's character, the very character that he has just questioned. And he appeals to history, to what God has done to rescue his people. 
he appeals to God's outstretched hand fighting for his people. He remembers God's deeds and his miracles. He considers and he meditates on all of them. You see, now he's pondering God's character, not through the filter of his current distress, but as it has been revealed and proven in history. And as he does that, two massive changes happen in this psalm, and both in verse 11. Firstly, for the only time in this psalm, Asaph uses God's real name. He refers to him as the Lord. In a lot of your Bibles, that will be in capital letters. That is the name that God declared to Moses when he also declared his character and his nature. Asaph's just questioned whether God really is who he says he is. Now he approaches God as he says he is. And secondly, after considering who the Lord is, the evidence for his character in history, Asaph starts to pray. I said prayer was conspicuous by its absence in the first half of this psalm. It is present in abundance in the second half. In fact, in every verse from 11 onwards, Asaph addresses God directly. And he's not praying to God to deliver him for his troubles. He's praising God. He's proclaiming God's character and his nature back to him. So what is it that Asaph learns from his third meditation to bring about such a change of heart? God is holy. God is greater than any other so-called God. God performs miracles. He displays his power, not just to his people, but among all peoples. God raised his mighty arm to redeem his people. That seems to be the crux of Asaph's meditation. He doesn't appeal to the Lord just because he's heard he's holy, or great, or miraculous, or powerful. No, he appeals to the Lord because in his holiness, his greatness, his miraculous powerfulness, he has acted to redeem his people. Did you notice as well there was a subtle change of tense in these verses? Verses 13 and 14 are the present tense, but verse 15 is the past tense. God is holy, God is great, God works miracles, God is powerful. How do we know this? Because God has acted in history to redeem his people. We can trust God's character now because of what he has already done. And so you can apply the same answer to each of Asaph's earlier questions or accusations. What is the evidence for God's favour? He redeemed his people. What's the evidence for God's unfailing love? He redeemed his people. What's the evidence for God's faithfulness to his promises? He redeemed his people. What's the evidence for God's mercy? He redeemed his people. What's the evidence for God's compassion? He redeemed his people. Remembering God's power and his will to redeem gets Asaph the reality check he needs. He stops looking at and interpreting God through the filter of his distress and starts to see God as he is, as he's declared himself to be, and as he's proven himself to be in history. But actually, it's not the whole span of Israel's history that he considers, that he remembers for this reality check. In fact, the first thing he remembers isn't actually history at all. 
True to form, Asaph is a musician and he remembers a song. You see, like the questions in verses 7 to 9, the statements in verses 13 to 15, they aren't a random collection of facts about God. They also have their roots back in Exodus. They evoke the mood of Moses' song in Exodus 15. There Moses sang to praise God and to celebrate God's act of redemption in parting the Red Sea, establishing Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. And that is the specific act that Asaph is considering in his meditation. And that's clear from the last five verses. Let me read those to you now. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and withered. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. Heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It was at the Red Sea that the Lord displayed his power in miraculously saving his people. It was there that Asaph looked to consider the evidence for God's character, despite his current distress. It was there that Asaph saw God's power and will to redeem. So how did remembering this help Asaph in his troubles? Hundreds of years had passed. How does meditating on this lead to anything other than more groaning and fainting? Asaph's troubles aren't over. As far as we know, they aren't even resolved at the end of this psalm. How does remembering the crossing of the Red Sea help him to respond to God in his distress here and now? Well, to answer that, we need to consider more of what's going on at the Red Sea. For all God's awesome thunder and lightning and whirlwinds and earthquake, for all his acts of power, he wasn't the only one to act at the Red Sea. You see, God's act of redemption there required an act of faith from his people. And that's how Asa and you and I are to respond to our distress. In our distress, yes, remember God as he is. Remember his power and his will to receive redeem, but also remember that the pattern for God's people is to faithfully follow him through our troubles. And that's what Israel did at the Red Sea. Just imagine for a minute how terrified they must have been. They're hemmed in between the sea and the desert and the pursuing Egyptians. We know they were terrified. Exodus 14 tells us they were terrified. This is what they said. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? They said to Moses. What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Like Asaph at the start of this psalm, they're not praying in their distress. Like Asaph, they're so overwhelmed by it that they refuse to see God as he is. And they've lived through the ten plagues. They've seen God's power at work to redeem his people. They've heard his intention to redeem them, 
to fulfill his promises to their ancestors, to give them a land of their own. But they can't see any of that any longer. They're so consumed with fear that all they can see is their current troubles. And that's before God's pyrotechnics and hydraulics start. Imagine how much more afraid they'd be when that kicks off. And where exactly was God in their distress? He wasn't in front of them leading the way. They couldn't follow his footsteps, as the psalm says. No, that was left at Moses and Aaron. God was behind them, keeping the Egyptians at bay. So imagine how you'd have felt, hemmed in by the desert and the mountains. Behind you, a pillar of terrifying fire and smoke. And behind that, the equally terrifying and now vengeful Egyptians. In front of you, the sea. Then the wind blows, the seas part. God's way forward is crystal clear. But I don't think it's very comforting. I would not have been the first to step out between those two walls of water. And yet, by faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. They found faith in God's power and will and method to redeem them, despite their distress. And for that faith, Hebrews holds them up as an example to us, together with a great many others, a cloud of witnesses who have faithfully followed God's path through horrific distress. They call us on to do the same. This is the pattern for God's people throughout scripture. And that's what Asaph realises in this psalm. Our present troubles don't diminish who God is. He is not defined by them. He's defined by his revealed character, his proven power and will to redeem his people. That's our comfort in our distress. That's our motivation to keep faithfully following his path through our troubles, whether the Lord removes them or not. So how are we responding to God in our troubles, in our distress? I'll bet some of you have cried out to God this evening, this morning. I'll bet some of you think you have, but probably haven't actually prayed for ages like Asaph. Some of you may have struggled to tune in this morning. Some will have found it hard to sing or articulate your faith at all, given the distress both within us and around us. For some of you, God probably feels very distant. Some of you will blame him for what's going on. Some of you will be refusing to be comforted without relief. Some of you will doubt God's graciousness and compassion. Our distress can undermine our confidence in God and convince us that he is not who he says he is. If that's you, consider again. Consider the Lord as he is. Remember his power and his will to redeem. Remember that you are not alone in this. This is the pattern for God's people. So keep faithfully following him. And as you consider, as you meditate, as you remember, remember that we have a better example than either Israelites or Asaph did. We have a shepherd that, like Moses and Aaron, 
but better. We have a leader who knows exactly how we feel. Jesus knows what it is to be distressed. He is familiar with the emotions in this psalm. He was distressed to the point of shedding blood when he considered where the path of faith would take him. He prayed for another way, but resolved to follow God's path to the cross. And there he experienced what Asaph had felt. He was abandoned, rejected, forsaken by his father. Jesus endured the cross because he understood that this path was God's greatest act of redemption, demonstrating to all people his mercy, his compassion, his faithfulness and his justice in forgiving while not letting guilt go unpunished. There Christ died the death that I deserved in my place so that I might be redeemed, free to live for him and not for myself any longer. Christ endured the cross because he saw that God's path went through death and on to resurrection, ascension and a place at the right hand of the Father. Jesus forged a path for us, not through the sea, but through death itself, our greatest trouble of all. The thing that we fear this coronavirus will bring and is bringing. And Jesus' path leads to resurrection life. This is a path that we can follow if we resolve to live by faith in him. But the path of faith in Christ, it doesn't remove our present troubles. And it may well be a frightening one to walk, as it would have been for Israel and Asaph and Jesus. It does offer hope as those who endure will be raised with Christ, where they will be eternally led and comforted and sustained and sheltered by God himself. So please, in our distress, consider the Lord as he really is. Remember his power and will to redeem his people, perfectly displayed at the cross. Resolve to keep faithfully following the path that Jesus has forged through our troubles, no matter how substantial they are. Let's pray that we would do that together. Heavenly Father, help us to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy before him, set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, in our distress here and now, help us, us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that in our current troubles and our distress, both within us and around us, we may not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.